The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So every Monday, there's a group of guys who gather in my office on Monday afternoon, and we break down the text for the following Sunday. It's been something that we've been doing for a number of years, and it's always exciting to see how God takes a text and all of a sudden the truths begin to drop out of that text. And there's those weeks that go by that whenever we do that, we see where the message is going and we get excited because we know God is going to do something amazing. And then there's those weeks where we break it down and we see where it's going and it's hard. And one of those guys will say, Paul, I'm glad you're preaching that and not me. But I'll pray for you. So we've got a very encouraging group there. So two Mondays ago, I came into that meeting a little bit confused over the text that we were going to be breaking down. And I was confused because the text seemed extremely long. It was 15 different verses. And there were multiple ways that you could break down the text. Part of the text was a repeat of some stories that had happened in previous chapters. Part of it was brand new. Part of it was absolutely necessary to set up the main idea, but it wasn't necessarily the main idea. So I was a little confused as to how we break it down. And we got into that meeting and we began to talk through it. And we felt as though God was leading to a very key specific part of the text. And we broke that down. We pulled the truths out. And we were excited. We prayed together as a group. Everybody left my office. And on Monday, our Monday evening, that's where I thought we were going. Within the first four hours of being in the study on Tuesday morning, God completely showed that uh, he was about to blow up my plans. And he took a passage and he went in a completely different direction. Same passage, but what happened is he made one word jump out in the second verse. And that one word, when it came out, it stopped me dead in my tracks. It was one of those moments where he used a word and it ushered me into a time of prayer and a time of repentance and a time of reflection. And I couldn't write fast enough to get down everything God was sharing. I couldn't even pray fast enough to process through what God was bringing out of that one particular verse. All I knew is I just needed to get along with God and spend more time in it. So over the next two days, I went up to Mount Charleston in order to sit and to pray over that one text and just be alone with God, be alone in solitude and just sit with God asking him to help pull out what it is that he wanted to share with me. And during that time, it moved from a time of prayer into a time of reading. It went from soul searching into a time of writing. It went from a time of hesitation into a time of excitement. And to this day, I'm not sure whether or not God primarily wanted to just do a work in me or if God ultimately has a work he wants to do within our entire church. But what I do know is it's the next section that's in our study. So I have to believe God has a word specifically for you that's going to come out of this text for today. I also want to admit from the beginning, I don't know how the services today are going to go. And that part's a little exciting, a little nerve-wracking for me. Um, I also want you to know that God has awakened something in my heart that I have not experienced for years. And he shared some pieces I've never known before. Now, before that gets people really nervous when a pastor gets up and shares that, let me say none of my theology has changed. 
I did not get any visions being on the mountain. Uh, the best of my knowledge, I've not acquired any new spiritual gifts like tongues or healing. I didn't even find a good set of golden tablets up there with a new revelation from God. So I, I just want you to know I'm the same guy I was two Sundays ago in orthodoxy and theology. I am not the same guy I was two Sundays ago in perspective and vision. And I want to share with you what God has been sharing with me. So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 25 through 30. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, live boldly in the will of God. Live boldly in the will of God. A thought that hit me this last week is I was really excited to share this message. And then when I didn't get a chance to, I began to wonder, why was that? And here's what God revealed last week. The first week he gave me the message. This last week he's been building the messenger. I wasn't prepared to give the message a week ago. And Lord willing, this morning, you'll be able to hear what it is God's been doing. So I invite you to look with me in the text. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 30. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray this morning, that you would allow us to have an incredible moment of clarity with you in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to get the big picture of what's happening, it's important that we know that there's three distinct groups that are interacting with Jesus in this text. There are the Jewish leaders called the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and they were attached to the temple ministry. We see them mentioned in verse 1, 11, 13, 15, 32, and 35. Uh, they would include the Pharisees. They would also include the Sadducees, usually those who were part of the chief priest, as well as the scribes. Then there's a second group, and those are the people, are the festival crowd. You see them mentioned in verse number 12, verse number 20, as well as in verses 31 and 32. They were Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem and came into Jerusalem in order to experience this festival that had called all of them together. They were not as influenced by the Jewish leaders, and as a result of that, they had no earthly idea about the plot to kill Jesus based on verses 19 and 20. Then there's a third group that is also interacting here. They are the Jews who resided in Jerusalem. We'll call them the Jerusalemites. Uh, they were influenced by the religious leaders, and they knew about this plot, this plan to kill Jesus based on verses 25 through 27. Those distinctions are absolutely important if we're to see the flow of the text. 
So in verses 19 through 24, the festival crowd, or those that are in group number two, had no idea that the leaders were trying to kill Jesus. In fact, when he brought up the topic, they said, you are demon-possessed or you're insane. However, in verses uh, 25 through 30, the Jerusalemites, group number three, they not only knew of the plot, but they were puzzled as to why Jesus was preaching and no one was saying anything to him. In fact, they ask in verse number 25, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Uh, the Greek structure of that, that statement is formed in a question. It's a rhetorical question. It, it expects an affirmative answer. That's the guy that they're talking about killing. And Jesus had just publicly condemned the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in verses 21 through 24. And those same leaders were paralyzed in silence. And the Jerusalemites didn't understand it. So they say in verse number 26, Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The tension and the gravity of this moment is actually captured back over in chapter 7, verse 1, whenever it says that Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So it's not that he was unwilling to die. That's exactly what he came for. John chapter 12, verse 27. The issue was it was not yet his time. Here's a thought that came to mind this last week that's just been sitting with me for a while. Jesus knowingly lived under a predetermined death sentence from the Father while living among people who were trying to accelerate the timeline. And yet, knowing that, he still goes before that crowd, calls out their hypocrisy, and they did nothing. Back in 2011, I was in a compound about three hours outside of Cairo whenever the Muslim Brotherhood reclaimed control of the Egyptian government. And millions of protesters took to the streets that night. They clashed with police officers and security forces throughout the evening. There were 800 people who were killed. There were 6,000 who were injured. There were over 90 police stations that were burned to the ground on that night. And I was a part of a small group of pastors, 8 to 10 pastors, who were doing a training conference for around 500 pastors from the underground church throughout the Middle East. So on that particular night, we are awakened in the middle of the night to machine guns and people shouting right outside the compound walls. Now, I want to set a visual in your mind for just a moment. When you're in a country that is openly hostile to the gospel and to Christianity, you're already alert. Whenever you know that millions of protesters just overthrew a corrupt government with a more militant branch of the government, you are on heightened alert. Whenever you also know that the compound that you're staying in has been burned to the ground twice in the past by Muslim extremists, your prayer life goes up. And whenever you hear machine gun fire outside the walls and people shouting, your fight or flight instincts kick in fast. I can remember waking up that night, looking around saying, is there any weapon in this room? Any weapon at all. My thought is, if I'm going to die, I'm going to go out swinging. And I don't know, that's probably not the most Christian perspective about things, but when you're in that moment, I'll let you decide what you want to do. So 
in my searching, I found a two-inch pocket knife and a lamp. That, that's what I had. Now, now, don't laugh. Remember, Samson killed a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. Imagine what he could have done with a pocket knife and a lamp. So long story short, praise God, nothing was necessary. In fact, they were not focused a bit on us. The group that was outside, they were firing off machine guns. They were shouting in celebration because their party was the one who won. They were not focused on us at all. But in that moment, we were thrust into a situation that I was thinking there was a group that is wanting to kill us. Listen, that reality changed everything about the rest of the trip. Because after knowing that, our actions as well as our perspective changed. We didn't do anything to draw attention to ourselves. In fact, we would travel at nighttime with the curtains pulled in the buses so that people wouldn't know it's a group of Americans going through. We had a security detail in front of us, a security detail behind us. We had security detail on the bus with us. We were guarded before that incident. We were hyper-vigilant after that incident. And listen, and that's after realizing we were never the target. Jesus was the target. He knew they were trying to kill him. He's not scrambling for a lamp and a pocket knife. Instead, he walks into the biggest city of the Jews in Jerusalem. During one of the greatest feasts of Judaism, the Feast of Booths, he steps onto the most prominent stage on the temple and he calls out the hypocrisy of the group that's trying to kill him. In fact, it says in verse 26, they said, look, he's speaking publicly. Or the King James would say, he speaketh boldly. That same word can be used as either boldly or confidently or publicly. And the Jerusalemites are shocked. Why didn't the leaders say something? Why didn't they stop him? Why didn't they arrest him? That's the same guy that they're trying to kill. And he's making a mockery of them on the biggest stage of Judaism, and they did nothing. And then they begin to wonder, did they know something about him that maybe he's the Christ, and they've not told us yet? Look at it in verse 26. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? So then the Jerusalemites, they continue in verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. They thought they completely understood why Jesus could not be the Christ, why he couldn't be the Messiah. Their belief was a combined thing of misinformation and misinterpretation and popular legend. They mistakenly thought that Jesus was born in Nazareth, chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, as well as chapter 6, verse 42. Poor interpretation of Isaiah 53, 8, as well as Malachi 3, 1, had created this popular legend stating Messiah would be unknown, he would appear suddenly out of nowhere, and he would redeem Israel. Believing that they knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, because of that they said, since we know where he's from, there's no possibility that this can be Messiah. Now granted, 
A couple of verses later, in chapter 7, verse 42, it is clear that they understood that he was to be born in Bethlehem, based upon a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, even though they are mistaken in their ideas about Messiah and his birthplace, Jesus didn't take the time to correct every false assumption and error that they had. He kept the main thing the main thing. You know, sometimes you don't have to correct every problem at once. So instead, he goes back to the big issue. The hard-hearted unbelief of the people. Verse number 28, it says, Then Jesus cried out in the temple. He yelled. The word there is he yelled so that everyone could hear. If they didn't know he was in the temple before, they knew at this particular point. And then the next phrase is better translated, so you know me and where I'm from, do you? It's in the form of a question. He's basically saying, you think you know me? You think you know where I'm from? And then he goes on to explain, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. And then he says, whom you do not know. If the hypocrisy statements made him mad, that one blew the roof off the temple. Because this was a group who prided themselves in their knowledge of God. And Jesus said, you don't know God. They're like those that Jeremiah the prophet spoke of years ago when he said, those who handle the law did not know me. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 8. Infuriated by their remarks, they try to seize him. Now this is not the same more of a public one. This is a grassroots movement to grab Jesus. The, the more public official one doesn't come up until verse 32. And yet it says, no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It doesn't tell us what happened that no one would touch him, but it does tell us why no one would touch him. His hour had not yet come. In God's sovereign, decreative will, Jesus was untouchable until the Father said, Now, even an impulsive mob could not touch him before his appointed hour. It is this scene, and specifically one word in verse number 26, that God has used to disrupt my life and initiate me into a time of prayer and repentance. Verse 26 says, look, he is speaking publicly. He's speaking confidently. He's speaking boldly. That word bold, boldly, it just began to sit and resonate in my spirit. I started to look up the word bold or boldly in the New Testament, and I quickly realized that it was a word that defined the first century church. Boldness epitomized the message as well as the method by which they preached. It was a word that characterized their prayers and the actions of the early church. Listen to these verses. Acts 4.31 says, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 4.13 tells us the Sanhedrin was amazed at the bold confidence of Peter and John. Acts 9.27 and 28 tells us immediately after his conversion, the Apostle Paul 
boldly spoke the name of Jesus in Damascus in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 18, 26 tells us that Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. When the apostle Paul arrived in Ephesus, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul asked the Ephesians, pray on my behalf to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in these chains but in proclaiming it that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Get that. While in chains for preaching the gospel, he's praying for greater boldness to preach the gospel. To the church in Philippi, he said, it is my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ even now as always will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's praying that God, whatever it takes, even if it's my own life, so that you are exalted, may I do it boldly. Give me confidence to do it boldly. First Thessalonians, Paul reminded them, after we have suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, We had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Not boldness in ourselves, but he said boldness in our God. Here's the question that God began to haunt me with. What in my life resembles first century Christianity? Where's the boldness in my prayers? Where's the boldness in my walk? Where's the boldness in how I'm discipling others? Am I willing to allow God to do a work in me if that's what's necessary for Him to do the work through me? Am I willing to risk the comfort of what God has done for the possibility of what God will do? Am I willing to suffer or even die if that's what it takes to move the gospel forward? How much of my time do I spend feathering my nest in comfort as opposed to boldly pursuing the heart of God and His kingdom? Am I willing to boldly preach and boldly give and boldly pray and boldly trust God to do the impossible? What in my life resembles first century Christianity? God has been wrecking my life for two weeks here. The more I ask the question, the more my prayers turn to repentance. And I want you all to know God revealed to me that I have not prayed boldly. I have not led boldly. Somewhere along the way, I've lost a lot of that boldness. And there's a part of it that I don't know if it is not knowing how to pray, not knowing if God would say no, not knowing if it's in alignment with his will. I don't know what that is, but all I know is he revealed that I had pulled back into safe prayers and safe dreams and safe giving and in safe service. Comfort became more appealing than sacrifice. Protecting what is here became more appealing than pursuing what is not. And God put this thought in my mind. Maybe it resonates with you. I don't know. But safe prayers lead to spiritually domesticated saints. Tame saints. Pacified saints. 
where the wide-eyed wonder of what God could do gets silenced with a voice of it will cost you too much to follow that path. In those prayers, God not only moved in repentance, but God was so gracious to remind me of some times when my prayer life was a little more bold. He walked me back through some moments where in North Carolina, I prayed that God would give myself and Bria the opportunity to plant a disciple-making church in Las Vegas, and God said yes. He reminded me of in my prayers, I prayed that God would burden the heart of a landowner or builder to donate millions of dollars worth of real estate so that this church would have a place of permanency. And God said, yes. He reminded me of my prayers over the years that God would give us mission partnerships around the world so that we could engage God's kingdom activities so that we could see what God is doing, that we could have people from here that go and serve elsewhere. And as a part of the universal body of Christ, we grow together and we serve together and we suffer together. And God said, yes, He reminded me of when we prayed that he would help us to build life community centers, a place for us to worship, but also a place where we could train disciples and a place we could start churches and a place where community would be felt and developed. And God said, yes, and on and on. He was so gracious to go back and remind me, there's a time, Paul, you pursued me more boldly. There's a time when you were asking me for different things. And then the question came, what are you asking me for? today? Where's your boldness in prayer today? I'm 46 years old. With an average lifespan of around 80 years, I'm in the third quarter of my life right now. And God doesn't even promise 80 years. I could be in the fourth quarter of my life right now and not even know it. I want the remainder of my life To be one that is living boldly in the will of God. I'm not talking about just running off half-cocked with crazy ideas. That's not it. I'm talking about sitting in the presence of God and hearing the heart of God and surrendering every part of who I am so that He would use me to the fullest. Here's what my prayers are, and I want to give them to you publicly because I want you to hold me accountable to my own prayer list. I am praying, God, would you help me to pray boldly? May my prayer life reflect the abilities of the God I serve. God, use me to give boldly. May he continuously challenge me year after year in selfishness and self-interest in my heart so that I will give more and I will give sacrificially year after year. I'm praying, God, use me to live boldly instead of worrying about every facet of tomorrow. How can I walk confidently in the grace that God has given today? I'm praying, God, use me to serve boldly. I'm asking that God would give us an opportunity to go to the places nobody else wants to go. Nobody else is willing to go, but the gospel has to go. I am praying that God would use me to love boldly, to love like Jesus loved. I'm praying that he would use me to lead boldly. And that starts in the home. If I am not a good leader in the home, I cannot be a good leader anywhere. But if I am a good leader at home, God can use me anywhere. I am praying that God would use me to worship 
boldly. And here's what I'm praying. I am praying God creates such a culture of those who boldly pursue Him in worship and in spirit and in truth that God would use this church to train up the next generation of musicians and songwriters and worshipers to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I am praying that God would use me to preach boldly. May I preach boldly and walk humbly and live faithfully and pray constantly. I'm praying that God would use me to help train another generation of preachers. I am asking God that he would give us a chance to help train up and send out hundreds of leather-lunged preachers who will live close and clean before God and take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. I am praying that God would do something in me. And if he does something to you, I praise God for that as well. I just know that I have to give an account of the life that he's given to me. So how about you? If boldness defined the first century church, where has timidity and fear and apathy diverted you? Where is God whispering into your spirits, I made you for more than you're currently engaged in? I've given a list that's in your notes, and I, I just I want you to take the principles of this message, and I want you to ask God some of these questions. And I believe it begins now, but I think it extends into your next several days, next several weeks. Ask God, where have I become spiritually domesticated? Where in my life has the allure for comfort replaced the excitement of following God into the unknown? What gifts or talents or abilities has God given me that are sitting dormant because the voice of fear has drowned out the voice of God? Where is God challenging me to give more? Where is God challenging me to go in service for Him? Where is God challenging me to serve others? When's the last time I was willing to take a bold stand for Him? Where in my Christian life am I dialing it in today from safety? How's my prayer life? What is God teaching me in the Word? What excuses am I using for not spending time with Him, for not going on that mission trip, for not being salt and light in my neighborhood, and for not loving people well? What lies is the enemy using to lock me away in fear when I should be engaging the world and the power of God? At what point do I stop playing religious games and I choose to live boldly in the will of God? That's what I want you to pray through. Mary Oliver an American poet said, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. It's been said you only live once. When you live well, once is all it takes. What do you do with your life? I'm going to ask you if you would to bow with me for prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I've asked that Matt and the praise team would lead a little bit longer in worship as we close out the service. Because I, I want you to begin the process of sitting with God. Maybe God's already brought to mind a couple of areas in which 
Fear has overwhelmed the boldness that you once had. And wherever those areas are, I want to encourage you, take them to God in prayer. Admit if there's an area that has been a a sin. Admit if there's an area that's been a weakness. None of us are perfect. I want to encourage you, take the time to not only pray, but take the time to worship him. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, as best I know how, I've tried to share what you've shared with me. So God, I pray that you would do what only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.